Welcome to a special 80s all over Patreon exclusive. I am Drew McQueenie and I am joined by my esteemed co-host Scott Weinberg for what I am so excited about and I hope will be an essential commentary for the Robert Altman film Popeye. I think it's safe to say that Drew and I both come uh, at this film with a good deal of nostalgic love. And, and what we're going to try and figure out over the course of this commentary is if, if there is also still practical, modern, pragmatic love. And I think it really is an underrated movie. Oh, I'm, I want to make the case for why this is 100% a Robert Altman movie and why that is the reason it works, not just coincidentally. It's also... I'm going to make the argument that it's also one of the most visually arresting, well-cast, and unique comic book adaptations ever. And uh, even those who don't appreciate or don't love the film would probably be hard-pressed to disagree with that. One of the things that's exciting about today is that th- there is no commentary, filmmaker's commentary for Popeye. Altman didn't do a lot of them, and this is a film that, that he never got around to. And at this point, we won't get that commentary from him. So what we did was I tracked down a book called The Popeye Story by Bridget Terry, which is a behind-the-scenes book that came out in the early 80s, right when the film came out, as well as Richard Annabile's movie novel, which contains extra material, and a couple of other sources, and we've compiled some things. Scott reached out to filmmakers. Can you talk about some of those people that you talked to? Yeah, I, uh, I, I sent out a tweet last night. I was trying to look for some feedback for some people to see if uh, what, what, what filmmakers of our approximate generation uh, feel about the film, and I wanted complete honesty if, if uh, you know, somebody thinks it's, you know, just bad, bad. I wanted that opinion too. Uh, you know, we don't want it to be all just, uh, you know, sun, sunshine and, and light. If somebody has legitimate criticism about this movie, I wanted to hear it. But turns out most of the filmmakers I asked really dig this movie. And I will pepper those little comments throughout the commentary. If you're listening to this audio commentary, it's because you are a member of our Patreon subscriber base. And we are ridiculously grateful, A, that you listen to the show and B, that you are an additional su- subscriber uh, hopefully you love this commentary. You enjoy listening to it. We're going to try and make it so that you can either watch the film along with it, or if you don't have access to the film, then hopefully it'll still be fun if you're just listening in your car or jogging or perhaps kayaking. Well, um, we, we also want to ask you guys, uh, please continue to visit 80sallover.com. We also have at 80sallover.com, we have v-80s-all-over.store. And it is where you can get the movies that we've talked about on the show so far. We're in the middle of trying to reorganize that so it's easier for you to find things by month, by year. Um, But the point is, we want you to have a one-stop place you can go and be able to find the stuff that we're talking about. Because in some cases, we have to really dig to track these things down. Popeye is not easily available at the moment. It's not a movie that Paramount or Disney thinks of as a high priority. And so as a result, if you want to rent it, you can, but you can't find it on Netflix. You can't find it easily. So um, it does require a little bit more legwork right now. And some of these films, that's going to be the case. Real quick, we'll tell you how to sync this up. The movie opens with an animated cartoon. So we'll tell you where to pause that. If you want to go ahead and get the movie, what you're going to try and do is sync it up. When the thing begins, there's a Paramount logo first in the cartoon, and then it cuts to Popeye the Sailor. It says that on the screen. Use the cut. We're going to pause on the cut. We're going to start there when we do the countdown. It's going to be a three, two, one, start. I have it paused on the screen that says Popeye the Sailor. When when Drew says three, two, one, cut, I'm hitting unpause, and then we're good to go, everybody. All right. So three, two, 
One, go. Um, so yeah, uh, real quick, the, the way this film began was not as an adaptation of Popeye. Uh, Robert Evans, who's the producer of the film, is not really typically associated with family fare. And it blows my mind that he went to a production of Annie on Broadway where he lost his mind, evidently. And, you know, if you know Robert Evans, that is a weird picture to try and, and put in your head. But he had a come to Jesus moment and he came back to L.A. and he was convinced that this is what they need to do. They needed to make something good and innocent and young. And so they went after the rights to Annie. And the auction drove the price up to over $10 million, at which point Paramount dropped out. Evans felt discouraged, told Paramount he was upset, and somebody at the studio mentioned to him, well, you know, we own Popeye the Sailor. And that is where this began its development. Yeah, uh, and and to our uh, astute viewers who just noticed something in the credits, I do believe this is the first and and second to last time you'll ever see uh, Paramount plus Disney. Uh, producing a film together. This was a a Paramount Disney co-production. After this, they would go on to uh, also collaborate on Dragon Slayer, and that would pretty much represent the uh, beginning and the end of that that Paramount slash Disney collaboration. And um, I always thought that was interesting as a kid. I thought, wow, this movie was so expensive, you needed two studios? And, you know, that's not exactly why it happened. Oh, Harry Nilsson, any Popeye fan has to uh, take a moment and uh, hold, uh, raise their glass to the late Harry Nilsson. What a great songwriter he was. And um, Drew, with, with with more conventional songwriters, this movie might not be uh, the cult or the uh, the adored item that it is now. Well, that's, that's the thing. Every piece of this film, the way it came together, was was unusual and I think necessary in order for it to be the Popeye that we love. You know, the first call that Evans made after he got the rights was Dustin Hoffman, who said that, yes, he would play the part and he'd do it. And then they went to Pfeiffer and Pfeiffer was the one that uh, Jules Pfeiffer, you see, just had the screenplay credit go by. Pfeiffer was the one that really pushed to base this on the Seagar comics, not on the uh, cartoons, which were by far the better known version of Popeye by that point. But like they they went to they made the decision, no Alice the Goon, no Jeep, no Sea Hag. And they they wanted no special effects just people and that's why they created sea haven which isn't uh, Drew, this moment sorry to interrupt you but this moment here when they kick the when the the, the shutters open and sweet haven kicks in i it's just a great moment for me it's a it's like a blues brothers moment i absolutely love this moment well it's important and one of the things that we'll talk about over the course of this is the cast there are no extras in this movie there's not a single person in this film who doesn't have a fully developed cartoon character that was created by jules pfeiffer robert altman and the actor together along with the costumer and everything else. They're all supposed to have different silhouettes. They're all supposed to have totally different traits. And there's nobody in the film who is background. Sweet Haven's an entire living town. And this is that introduction where we see it kind of come to life and we see how it all works together. This, uh, the gentleman, I'm going to try and run through it. There's, you know, most people think it's olive oil, it's Shelley Duvall and it's Robin Williams, but there are a ton of character actors that you know in this movie, and you might not recognize them or you might not know their names, but there is probably a dozen or more actors in this movie that we all know and love. We just saw one. A gentleman named Paul Dooley plays Wimpy. He was a Robert Altman regular. And uh, throughout the 80s, I'm just running through his 80s list here. He was in, ugh, well, he came off Breaking Away in 79, which he's brilliant in. That's the and, only reason he got this. They wouldn't they wouldn't give him the part because he wasn't a name until Breaking Away suddenly made him. Everybody wanted to hire him for everything because of the Oscar nomination. 
That's awesome. He was also in the 80s. He was also, of course, in Strange Brew, Kiss Me Goodbye, Going Berserk. He was the dad in 16 Candles. He, uh, uh, Big Trouble he did, Monster in the Closet. He, he would, just a, a fantastic, uh, fantastic character actor. Still going. That gentleman there flopping all over the ground is, of course, Bill Irwin as Ham Gravy, Olive Oil's ex. I uh, had a larger role, Drew. Did they cover this in the book that, that Irwin had a larger role uh, and they kind of cut that down? Uh it's it's not that there there was more material that they shot so much as with everybody they built more backstory than they ended up using like they built props for them they built costuming for them they built so many pieces that they could use if they needed them but Almond's process is until he gets to the set and he puts everybody in the scene he doesn't know how it's going to work so some of the Pfeiffer script came out some of it got reworked um, everything this entire sequence actually had to be reshot in bits and pieces because um, Popeye's arms were such a nightmare to develop that they weren't ready yet. And this was one of the first big things they shot. So that's the reason his coat goes back on at a certain point is they needed to cover the arms. That shot you just saw there was shot later so that they could really emphasize, look, we figured them out. We got hair on them. They look good. They look like real arms now. Yeah, the um, uh, Bill Irwin is a brilliant uh, uh, physical comedian. Uh, um, uh, John Sayles fans will remember him from, uh, he played Eddie Collins in Eight Men Out. He's also got a, a little part in My Blue Heaven and he's in Hot Shots. He's a, just, just one of those eponymous faces, Bill Irwin. You never, you can't exactly spot what he's from every time, but everybody knows Bill Irwin. He's great. Well, I mean, lately people would have seen him on Legion where he had a major role and, uh, he shows up on, of all things, Special Victims Unit SVU as a psychiatrist in a recurring role. And it's one of the weirdest uses of him. Okay, this gentleman here is Donald Moffat uh, as, as the tax man, and he's been cooking. He's, he's been around forever. He's been an actor since the 80s. I remember him from Earthquake, uh, but in the 80s, we would run through, what did he do? Oh, he's in the, he plays Lyndon B. Johnson in The Right Stuff. He's also in oh, a good little film called Alamo Bay. Oh, he's in The Best of Times, plays the colonel, uh, and he's just a fantastic actor. He's uh, still cooking. Born in this 1930. Is one of the characters, this is one of the characters that didn't exist uh, for Seagar that they had to develop. And the entire point was they wanted somebody who served as the functionary between the Commodore and the rest of the town. Somebody who, like, collected the taxes and, and enforced things, but was meant to just be meant to be just be officious rules that that we get in Popeye's face everywhere he turned. And they went through like 30 costumes trying to figure Moffat out. Um, and it really wasn't until the last day or so that they fin finalized that look and that little cart of his that he had so much fun driving and scaring people with. Yeah, uh, and here, of course, we have uh, a very important moment. In, if you're talking about a comic book origin story, which this is, we have Popeye discovering his corncob pipe, and he picks it up off the ground and uh, puts it in his mouth. Not all that sanitary. But, That's important uh, that you point that out, because this is not the story of Popeye the Sailor from the beginning. This is the story of how, by the very end of the film, he will be Popeye the Sailor. And it's it's different than a, what a lot of these films do, in that he is not that character really throughout the entire film. This, of course, is the legendary Linda Hunt. Love her. She And, of course, she's one of the only people who can... She, um, he, he's like butting heads with each of the individuals and, you know, it, it, it makes sense for later uh, on why everybody looks at him. They don't like him. Uh, they don't trust him. He's a newcomer. And I think that's part of the uh, interesting things about this movie is that, you know, it's such an insular, uh, isolated town and they're afraid of a stranger. And then, 
you know, uh, it's him trying to win them over. That's not the just plot. <laughs> not just that, but one of the things that they, they did very specifically is they wanted Sweet Haven to exist as a place where the longer you stay there, the more Sweet Haven you get. So it's not just that they're afraid of him. It's that the, the longer Popeye stays, the more he's like them. And you see that happen. He loosens up into the rhythms of this weird little cartoon place more and more over the course of the film, just like we do as viewers. Because it is very strange. This opening sequence, the sound of it and the way the music is done. It's beautiful. It's so odd, but it's it's unique. I like I love the look of it. The weathered everything is weathered. I mean <laughs> it just everything uh it looks like a, a a small village that just got piled up on top of itself and and doesn't I like have that you mu- talked to some of the people that have been to it on Twitter and they sent you some photos from they went because it's nuts to me that Sweet Haven is still there that you can actually go to Malta uh Richard Libertini the great Richard uh, Libertini I will easily- I will dedicate a good 5 sec a good 5 minutes to this late brilliant actor in a minute i was just gonna i wanted to of course and there's donovan scott tripping through the background but i also wanted to pay proper credit to the great linda hunt she went after this she would win an oscar for the year of living dangerously and then throughout the 80s she would go on to do dune silverado uh and then uh she devil for john waters and she's you know popped up in movies and tv forever she is a, a great diminutive actor i uh, love linda hunt Now, one thing that I remember for Richard Libertini growing up, you mentioned him on Twitter and you will immediately get 100 people saying, oh, back in bowl, put it in a back in bowl, because Richard Libertini plays this wonderfully kooky guru in a really underrated comedy called All of Me. And um, he's great. He's just the the textbook example of a great character actor, Richard Libertini. You'll remember him. Uh, he he did Best Friends in '82. He did um, Unfaithfully Yours with Dudley Moore. He did All of Me. He was the the uh, the head. They was the um the editor at uh, Chevy Chase's editor in Fletch. Uh, just just a great great character actor. As soon as Altman came on board uh, for this, he started kind of putting his ensemble together, and it's it's interesting because he's he doesn't build ensembles the way anybody else does like with paul dooley they were working on another film that came out we've i I believe we actually talked about on the podcast health um and while they were on set there just came a moment where altman when dooley started walking on set would go there's wimpy there he is there's wimpy and that's how he would tell him no you're you're playing it no matter what didn't matter what executives thought it didn't matter what anybody else thought like this actress roberta cooley she thought she was too young she argued with altman that she was the wrong person for this part and he was convinced, no, no, it's not about how old you are. We can put a wig on you and all that's fine. You're the, per- you're the right person chemistry-wise. And for him, it was all about that room full of oils to see how they would all play off of each other. Yeah, I don't know. She's uh, Roberta Maxwell. She goes by now, and she was in The Changeling, and she was in a brilliant 83 TV movie called Special Bulletin. She's also in Psycho 3. Uh, I love her in this. She is a great, ma- the great maternal figure. She plays the comedy really well, but she's also very sweet and warm. And here is, in my opinion, maybe the best casting job in the history of comic book movies. Am, am, I, am I nuts? Look at her. That is olive oil, Drew. Are you kidding me? Well, and, and here's the thing. You know, she was doing The Shining, and she was miserable. And we've, I, I think if you're a fan of The Shining, you've heard stories about how Kubrick tormented her in, in order to get her to that place of hysteria. And it was very real. So she was in the middle of a breakdown when she got the first call from Altman saying, what are you doing after The Shining? And she's like, I, uh, probably checking myself into a mental hospital. And he said, oh, I've got one for you. It's called Sweet Haven, and you'll come and you'll be olive oil. 
and she thought at that point, great, because it's Robert and because that's he said that, that's me. She immediately began preparing. As Nilsson wrote songs, he wrote them for her, for her voice distinctly. And at the same time, Paramount said, no, it's not going to be her. She's not a star, and we're certainly not bankrolling a movie where she's the lead. And so they pushed for Gilda Radner and spent six months negotiating with Gilda Radner and working on her and trying to get the price down. The worst part of that, I think, is that Gilda Radner was a good friend of Shelley Duvall's. So the whole time it's happening, she's telling Shelley Duvall what Paramount is doing while Altman is telling her, don't worry, you still have the part. You're olive oil. I can't imagine what that does to a performer. And then in the end, he was right. And you're, you're correct. There's no one else that you can even imagine playing this part physically or comically. She's perfect. And having said that, as, as flawless and as perfect as Shelley Duvall is, I, I can't help but wish I could see at least some some moments of Gilda Radner in this part because I always thought Gilda Radner never really had a chance to shine as, a, as an actor. Uh, well, she know, had she, some of the same fears that, uh, that Williams did because I know for, for Williams, this was his big screen break. And it's kind of scary because he's going from playing Mork, which is a very big, broad character, to playing a comic strip. And at the time, you know, that, that's not what you did. Comic books were not as hot as they are now. Not everybody wanted their own superhero. So I think he was really worried that he was going to be put in some weird box where he only played strange characters or weird characters. So it was very nerve-wracking for Williams. And I think he really debated whether or not this was the right move. And I'm so glad he did it because I, looking back at it for this viewing and to prepare for the podcast, I'm struck again by how sweet and how funny and how weird his performance is, and yet how truly Popeye it is. Yeah, his it's very voice. warm. It's very warm. It's very like he's like a lost kid, and he's a sweet kid. You know, he he he. You know, he's he's not rude. He, I mean, he's very uh, uh, civil. He's very chivalrous. He's polite. Uh, you know, and you're like, wait, and you're watching it now, thinking, oh, this is this is the sweet little uh, story about how he becomes the Popeye we all know and love. But on the other hand, your brain is thinking. The Popeye I know and love kicks some butt. So <laughs> I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to seeing him kick some butt. You know, <laughs> I like I like that the voice is like he's been at sea by himself for so long that he doesn't know. He's Look at the arms in this out. shot. Look how great that looks, man. They're weird, but they look so great. Wolf Kroger's Wolf Kroger's production design across the board is fantastic. The costuming in this movie is perfect. And like they said, everybody has their own comic, has their own shape if you look at them whether it's wimpy or castor oil or uh the father or the mother or a uh, geezel the richard libertini character they all have such distinct visual signatures on yeah screen. the whole oil is played by a gentleman named mcintyre dixon who would show yeah he'd show up in uh reds batteries not included the secret of my success and funny farm oh and the dream team very very uh, busy prolific character actor he's great and uh even uh, he's, you know, the older actors, you know, when you're young, you, you remember the young, the people who are about your age or, you know, uh, Donovan Scott has always popped out to me. He's just a very underappreciated, overlooked character actor, but he's been in so many things in the 80s alone. Donovan Scott was in, well, we could start with 1941. He's in that. He's in Popeye. He's an in incredible shrinking man. He's in Zorro the Gay Blade. Savannah Smiles. He's Leslie in Police Academy. He's in Sheena. And Best of Times also. Uh, and Psycho 3. Wow, a lot of people went on to those two movies together. Uh, but my point is, Donovan Scott is just a, just a likable schlub actor. You know, just a, sometimes the chubby comic relief, sometimes the sidekick. But, oh, I was like Donovan Scott. 
I think the visual development of Popeye, the way they, they move him from this version, which is still fairly realistic in terms of the cl- the costuming and everything else, he's not dressed like the Sweet Haven people yet. He doesn't look like a cartoon yet. And I like the... I They went... I mean, my God, the development took so long to get the arms right, to get the hair right, to figure out how to do the eye. And it's so strange because when you read the, the behind-the-scenes book, it's clear that whoever the makeup artist was who was hired to do the arms originally asked for his name to be taken out. And they took the name out, but everything else is still there. So they talk about how it was almost six months of money and time that they wasted trying to figure the arms out. And they kept looking like foam, and they would bend wrong, and the seams would show. And so it came down to the end of it, and Altman turned to the Italian hair and wardrobe people who were just doing the hair, the typical like movie hair, on location, and he asked them what they would do, and they had worked with Fellini and people like that. And within like a week, they turned around and they came back with perfect arms. They had people doing real human hair through them, so they actually looked like arms and worked like arms. Like they figured it out almost overnight. And I think one of the things that that steered Altman to do is there's no optical effects in the film, there's no visual effects of any kind in the film. Everything that was done for this movie was done in front of the camera and real. And he wanted to make sure that everything could happen in a real space. That opening sequence that we just watched, the Sweet Haven thing, how long do you think that took to shoot, Scott? Uh, just the Sweet Haven number? I, just I'm, the Sweet Haven number. Honestly, since the way you're posing the question, I'll go high and say three weeks. A month. And the reason was because it was the first thing. And he said, I need that month to make sure Sweet Haven's alive. After that, I'll start shooting faster because we'll know. So that month was exploratory of just walking those streets and figuring out how each beat would work and how each town person fit in. That's crazy to me. And I can't imagine anybody else working like that, but it's one of the reasons that when you look at that number, whether you realize it or not, it all feels alive. Yeah. Speaking of alive, the sequence that's about to end, I absolutely love this whole sequence of him coming into the dining room, trying to sit with them. It's all done in very long takes of him trying to get a seat of them all talking over each other. And it really sets. Yeah, it sets the stage for how manic and how kind of, you know, devoted, but how dysfunctional this lovable little family is and how they see him as an outsider. They they barely even see him. And, you know, it just the movie does a really good job of slowly giving Popeye just a little bit more uh, more of a family, a little bit more. He gets he gets, you know, he insinuates himself into this town a little bit more every 10 or 15 minutes. And we also start to set up the mystery here, which is the mystery of Popeye's parentage. And again, not something that was ever really part of the strip, but they did such a nice job of. And this was something that from the moment Pfeiffer started working on the script, it was basically this. He had. In the first 50 pages, he had Popeye comes to town, moves in with the oils. There's the tax man, the Commodore, Bluto. They find the baby. That kind of brings them together. And that's what they showed to Dustin Hoffman and Hal Ashby, who said, I'll make the film. And then it was only when it was all finished and Pfeiffer turned the entire script in that Hoffman was like, I don't know anymore. And they had a long day where he, he bowed out and then Ashby p- fell out. And it really looked like the film fell apart almost overnight. It was Altman that then began to slowly put it back together and really take care of it. And he was the one that saw the opportunity that Pfeiffer had laid out to build this town for real. Yeah. And and these are little things that teach a kid about filmmaking and about like structure. There's like that great shot of the whole town going to bed and shutting down. The only light that stays lit is him. And he's reading about he's reading. At first, it looks like he's just reading a book. Of course, it's about his father. But 
The interesting thing is he's already changing this town. They all go to bed at 8 p.m. or whatever. He is nonconformist. He is bringing a new element to this town. And, that, you know, that's, you know, film, that's the symbolism 101. Anybody who watches film could figure that out. But I'm 12 years old watching this going, oh, he's going to, like, introduce them in how to be more free and how to be more fun because they're so dreary. And that is, like, that's what, the, you know, little, little things like that help a young kid really appreciate film. Well, and here's the thing. All of this, the fact that it works as coherently as he does is kind of remarkable because when they were shooting... Nilsson was there on set. Pfeiffer was there on set. This was not a thing that existed as a finished document in any way. Even scenes like this radically changed over the course of development. They would work on the songs during the day. They would record them at night after they finished shooting for the day. Then over the course of the next day, they would try them on a set and see how they worked live. And then they would have to people re-record them live. So the songs would continue to change even as they were played sometimes in entire locations and things. This number, for example, Food, Nilsson hated the way this was filmed, hated what they did to his song, and that happened a few times where they had one vision of it, Altman and another, but that tension, I think, is what makes it more interesting. Uh, it's I, nobody's yeah. exact thing. I love the interior of this shanty. I, I, I love the look of it. I love when they, sh they shot up upstairs when uh, Bluto's on the right and, and there's this weird uh, uh, like uh, mural on the left. It's just, you know, it's all gray. And the only things that really pop are the characters. Um, I, I love this number. I mean, I wouldn't call it a brilliant song, but it, it fits the tone of the movie. And we didn't mention, I, I, I do want to throw a little love towards Paul Smith, the, uh, the large actor who plays Bluto. He is absolutely fantastic in the role. He doesn't just look the role. He plays the seething anger perfectly. Uh, genre fans will, of course, know Paul Smith from a film a few years later called Pieces. He was also in Dune and Red Sonja, uh, Haunted Honeymoon, Gore. And uh, he, he was uh, fairly prolific in B-movies for a long time. Passed away, unfortunately, in 2012. Uh, but uh, his Popeye is absolutely legendary. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of the people here in the restaurant, um, this is actually one of the ways that they they allowed Nilsson to have his band on set was they made the band into townspeople. So you get all the musicians in the like the preacher that you keep seeing pop up. Ray Cooper, uh, he's like one of the top drummers in rock and roll. He just finished touring with Elton John before he came to do this and did this because he loved Nilsson. And he thought what a gas it would be to be in Malta for a few months. Oh, see that shot? I never noticed that before. When the tax man leaves, there's a guy sitting on a stump and he's like scared and he runs away. <laughs> there's stuff in every little corner of this movie. There's there is. And yeah. they all have relationships with each other so that so that even if you're not paying attention to it, they've got it going on in the background there. Um, so the mayor is one of the guys from the band. Um, the uh, when you see them outside the barbershop, you see the blind man and you see the guy with the shaving cream on his face and the barber. That's the band. That's Nilsson's band for the most part. It's Susan um, Kingsley as Laverne the Waitress. She, she has a great look. I love the way she looks. She doesn't do much in the movie, but she just adds like a, that hairstyle is great. But he did, he developed an entire character for Roughhouse, the guy running the restaurant, and gave him this whole backstory that they ended up not using, but that was there if they needed it. And I think that was what he that's what they did the most with these guys, is everybody was always ready to jump into a scene and like have something that they 
could do and that was interesting visually. Yeah, I remember. It's funny you mentioned that. I did not know that uh, originally that Jeep and Sea Hag and some of the more supernatural elements of Popeye, which were, this is, you know, probably the most literal version of Popeye you could get. But I, I it's interesting that th- those were included in the original screenplay. Uh, they they were in his original treatment, and it was Evans who pretty quickly was like, I, it's got to be real world, because if we do effects, it's going to get into a whole other thing, a whole different kind of movie. Yeah, because my favorite characters in Popeye were always when it went weird with Jeep or Sea Hag or the goon, uh, the goons. But this is, yeah, this is strictly uh, the human, the humanistic uh, interpretation of Popeye. And then, so the effects that they do are like in this fight that's coming up, this is where you get your what passes for effects and it's all just rigging. So you've got breakaway windows and tables and chairs and bar stools and everything and vibrating tables and things hidden around the set so that as they do the fight, they can then exaggerate it into a higher cartoon level, but still make it look somewhat human and real. It's, it's a really fine line that I think Altman walks in this movie. It does. It, I mean, if you didn't know better, you would think, Oh, this was definitely a stage play that got turned into a movie. And I don't mean that as a criticism or a compliment. It just, it really feels like it was a stage play that got turned into a movie. Oh, these four tufts over here, if you keep your eyes peeled, Dennis Franz is one of the uh, four tufts, and he keeps popping up throughout the movie. Uh, there he's in the middle there. And uh, of course, you know, Dennis Franz, I don't need to, I don't need to, uh, I love that shot. I love, I don't know why. What are these, this, this bizarre physical comedy? Um, this here, she locked herself in a birdcage. What is it? It's Bill Irwin. What, why? What is that? Well, because he, he knows full well what they can do, and I love what they do to him, and it's a great gag that is entirely performance-based. It's all Irwin. Yep. He sells this beautifully. I love Paul Dooley behind him there. Look at him. He's just he's still eating his cheeseburger. He don't care. His hamburger. Oh, it's wimpy. If Wimpy can get his hamburger. And I, I like that they didn't go super fat with Paul Dooley, and they also didn't make him exaggerate the uh, the voice or the character. He's basically Paul Dooley, but his attitude is really funny. The way he, yeah, he just will hustle you know, hamburgers out from stuff, under you without you seeing He's it. picking stuff up off other people's tables. You know, it's like all little stuff. And, and I think part of this is why we love uh, – I think this is why we love Altman so much is because he knew that people who will revisit a movie – We'll discover these things that I'm tucking into each corner and in the background. Like, if you don't like the movie, oh, well, then you won't notice any of these ever. But if you liked Popeye and you come back to it a second or third time, you will get all these little tidbits and you'll be rewarded a second and third time. And that's why, and it's true of a lot of Waltman movies, you know, like I saw a lot more in Nashville the second time and third time I saw it than I did the first um, I love the I love the way color is used in this movie. One of the things they had to do to the town was actually paint the cliffs because they were the wrong color in order to make everything pop in front of it. And they do that with uh, with uh, Williams as well. The blonde hair makes his blue eye since he doesn't have two. He just has that one even more piercing than normal. And man, did they really get mileage out of the closed one and the popped open one so that it, it really jumps off the screen. Oh, I love that guy. Drew, why don't uh, what do you do? What do you want to get into first? Do you want to talk about because because from our, our from our youth on, this film has been derided as a a turkey and b a bomb. Now I think we're going to spend the next two hours explaining why we and other people believe that this is a good film, but I think that we can probably explain the bomb aspect in it in that the movie had much higher expectations than it did. 
And even back then, it's the same thing that we have now. If your favorite uh, superhero movie, call it Suicide Squad or Avengers 4, opens tomorrow and it opens a, a little bit less than what they projected, then some outlets are going to call it a bomb because that's the easier narrative of, oh my God, it underperformed. Well, you also have to understand that for Robert Altman, he was coming off of two disasters, both both health and um, a perfect couple that both came out before this. Uh, they were just they tanked. They didn't do badly. They tanked. They were they were negative re re returns. So it was really for him make or break here. Oh, good pop. Uh, by by most accounts, and you know it's hard to tell all these years later. But I've done some research, and the budget was approximately twenty. And worldwide, it did between 50 and 60 theatrically. So that means that the film was already slightly in the black at the point. And it's safe to say that over the last 40 years, it has turned a pretty healthy profit as a cult item, as a soundtrack album. Um, and so, so yeah, it didn't. It, it was a relative disappointment to these two studios because they were hoping it would be a smash hit. But, you know, 60 million worldwide off a $20 million budget in 1980... I would not call that a mega bomb. I would not. Well, and it was, and and it was. It's you also have to understand that with the expectations for Paramount and Disney were such that this was a giant. giant they didn't do thousand screen releases for every film at this point. This was a thousand screen release, so it was gigantic for them. Um, and they did they did nonstop. Like Life Magazine had a full issue dedicated to it, and there were. Uh, Special issues in newspapers that they uh, oh, negotiated dude, there was, things. There were action figures, board games. Not uh, only that, but it was the very first film they did a... This is the first, uh, for people who are freaks for theater sound, this was the first digital sound release anywhere. It was uh, created by Lionsgate and Paramount just for this. And they did, uh, they did two theaters in New York, two in LA, and one in Chicago, where they installed the new process just for this to create a 12-speaker sphere of surround sound. That process was used twice, and this was one of the movies specifically for that soundtrack and for the mix that Altman did. Uh, did you have this cassette when you were a kid, or, or oh, vinyl? God, yeah, I had the record, I had the LP, and I got it as soon as it was available. Uh, as far as critical concern it goes, I would like if if uh, if our listeners don't mind, I would like to run through briefly Roger Ebert's nineteen eighty review of this film. Um, and, you know, back in 1980, Roger Ebert was, of course, a, a very respected film critic, not exactly as uh, voluminous and as uh, famous as he turned out to be many, many years later. But I think that his opinion still holds a certain amount of weight. And it makes me happy that a, a film critic that I respect so much ha had nice things to say about what I consider a very underappreciated film. So let's do that. One of Robert Altman's trademarks is the way he creates whole new worlds in his movies. Worlds where we somehow don't believe that life ends at the edge of the screen. Worlds in which the main characters are surrounded by other people plunging ahead at the business of living. The gift for populating new places is one of the richest treasures in Popeye, Altman's musical comedy. He takes one of the most artificial and limiting of art forms, the comic strip, and raises it to the level of high comedy and high spirits. I'll read some more as we go, but that makes me happy. Like, he got it. Yeah, I, and there were certainly Altman fans. I, I thought it was interesting how uh, Kale did not seem to really vibe with this movie, and she was such a rabid defender of Altman for the most part before this. Um, I really like the uh, the four women there that play um, Olive's sort of chorus, uh, if you will. 
they're known as the uh, the Steinettes or the Wallflower sisters of the characters. But I like how they would do that. They would cast not just a the individuals, but the group to play a role. Um, and I love that this party is by the the account in the film. This is like the ninth time they've tried to do this, and Olive continually seems to make Bluto insane. And I think that this town is a town joke precisely because of that. Uh, this is one of the first songs that Nilsson wrote for her, and it is a beautiful match to Shelley Duvall's gifts, both as a comedy performer. And I think the sweetness of Olive Oil starts to break through here because she's so brittle for the first act of this movie. She's so abrasive in many ways. Yeah, that's the funny thing about it is if you made this movie today, every note would say, Oh, Olive is too brittle in the for the first twenty uh, for the first half of the movie. She's got to make her sweeter. You got to make her warmer. No, I like that. Like she is tough to please, and like we get Popeye has to win her over. She's not just like she has a suitor. She's not even that interested in. She has options. You know, I like that. And she's so they they are essentially mocking her as they dress her for this party. Like they they are so over the drama of olive oil and Bluto. And so I think one of the things that is really funny is once Popeye becomes a player in this and they show back up at the baby later and you watch the townspeople around him, not only do they clear out because they know Bluto's coming, but they also clear out so they can just watch the show because they've seen it before. They know how bad it's about to get and they're a little bit delighted by it. Yeah. And for a movie that's so light in plot, it doesn't spoon feed it to you. You have to like watch this scene to be like, Oh, they're teasing her. Oh, they're he angry. such a brute. Yeah. Oh, they're, you know, oh, uh, you know, you have to like really as simple as this movie is, you have to pay attention to these set pieces to follow the unspoken narrative, you know, which like you said, she's turned him down many times. And like that sets the stage for his anger when Popeye finally shows up. <laughs> it's also important because you do get a sense. This is this is that weird dowry system, basically, where if she doesn't marry him, the family is fucked. And so the pressure is really on Olive. And that's why she's packing that suitcase. And that's why she's going out that back door, because it's not about love. No, it's yeah. a great moment in the song. It's where they they think they're mocking her, but she knows they're mocking her. And she's using that to make her escape. <laughs> she's smarter than you. She, you know, she's smarter than you. Uh, she lets on. It's a terrific number. It really is. Um, and I, I this leads to. We're, we're getting close to the introduction of my one of my favorite characters in the movie and uh, a, a genuine sort of miracle in terms of casting. And that is, of course, Wesley Ivanhurt, who plays Sweepy in the movie. Uh, in, as every Popeye fan knows, the l- beautiful little Sweepy is, of course, Robert Altman's grandson. And, and was kind of a weird accident of casting where they weren't sure and there was a long period where they worked on a mechanical baby and the same people that made the pelican and the uh the octopus that doesn't work in the film um made a a version of sweepy that was sort of based on wesley Ivanhurt, but that's what they were going to use for the movie uh, because they Irwin. needed him to do stuff uh, does bill Irwin even have any lines in this movie <laughs> uh they're all they're all sort of thrown away and super and it's he's, all just attitude he steals it's, the entire movie without even speaking <laughs> well and i think he was one of the guys who turned altman on to the idea of using circus performers because so much of his training is mime and and circus and and that kind of thing and he does so much with his body that is insane that altman did he turned around and he went to acrobats and circus performers for the townspeople 
and then realized he was going to get extra added value because they did things in their performance that actors wouldn't, that regular actors wouldn't. Uh, so uh, some of the filmmakers that I, uh, I reached out to last night, um, our, our mutual friend, Duncan Jones, the wonderful director of Moon and Source Code and Warcraft, he said, uh, Robert Altman, that's all I needed. I loved it. And when I told him that as a kid, I didn't know Robert Altman from Robert Redford, Duncan Jones says, I knew Altman because I was already weirdly passionate about MASH even back then, dad showing me stuff way too young again. And of course, we know that Duncan Jones's father is the late, brilliant David Bowie. So I like to imagine that David Bowie and his little boy watching MASH together <laughs> in like 1981, and it just warms and my heart. And then getting really excited because Popeye's coming. Yeah, it just warms my heart to think of that image. <laughs> so I love that trick that they just played on Bluto. I love how relieved everybody in the room is when he goes for it. Like, oh, thank God we got him to, to go with uh, She Loves Me uh, instead of She Loves Me Not. It is almost the end of the world there. Smith is, it's so weird because Smith does not have a lot of performances under his belt. And I think he's a guy who's he's somewhat limited by size and by, by just his physical presence. You weren't going to cast him to do a lot of things. But man, when they cast him right, he is really, yeah. really interesting. If you look he's at his career, man, he, he, he seems to have a real good sense of humor about his bulk and, 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 and villainous look, you know? Uh, but it, it, uh, he did a really bad horror film in 1982 that I absolutely adore called Pieces. And we'll we'll get to Paul Smith some more <laughs> later on down the road. OK, so that Pelican is is was meant to have a much larger role and originally had dialogue with them. Yeah, I, I mean, it would be interesting to see, but I can't help but think that given the film's reputation and history, that sticking to the most human or the most non-supernatural is probably the best way to go. Because it's already it's already weird enough, right? You don't need to have talking pelicans and, 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 and the magic Jeep. You know, you don't need that. I think in general, part of the problem was that it was just he indulged every interest he had. So the first cut that they had in August of 1980 was two hours, 46 minutes. I and killed to see that cut. There were, there were whole songs that were cut, including oh, Wimpy's song. Stop it. There's a song called Wimpy's song that was cut. Uh, the octopus fight was largely cut after that. Um, so, yeah, there was by the time they got it to October, it was the version that we know now. And uh, they cut almost an hour of film. Got it. James Gunn director of the awesome Guardians of the Galaxy movies and Slither and several other films, lots of good indies. He said, I love a lot of Altman, Long Goodbye, McCabe, Nashville, California Split, but not a big fan of Popeye. And I said, that kind of surprises me because James Gunn is kind of a goofball and Popeye is a movie made for goofballs. And he says, maybe I'll give it a rewatch. Who knows? So uh, I think James Gunn might be a little busy these days, but when he gets two hours free, I do hope he'll Give it another shot and uh, and and uh, like it a little bit more. But you know, thank you, James. Thank you, Duncan. I like that this is one of the first times we really get Popeye and Olive alone, and I think that that's. I love it. I love them together. I love that they're combative. They don't even seem to really like each other, but yet they're drawn to each other because they're both feel alone in this town. I love it. When they put her in those size thirty six shoes and she starts moving. She can barely keep those limbs all going in the same direction, and it's kind of magnificent watching her do it. 
Whereas he is the opposite. He's so graceful. I love every move Popeye makes. That little, yeah, that little stutter step that he does. And the scene before where she's all wiggly wobbly. And I always thought that was like a, a, a sweet metaphor for like, she's nervous. They're both nervous because they like each other. So she gets all wobbly need. And yeah, it's very broad and very silly, but I think it, it you know, cuts across the symbolism. It cuts across what it, it, it tells what it wants to tell. Uh, now she's feeling her, very... Her physical... She, Look at her. Look, now she feels secure. Now she, now she, he's, he's uh, following her. He's carrying her luggage and she feels now, now she's going to lay down the law, you know? And it's like uh, the first formative stages of a new boyfriend and girlfriend. Like they both are laying down the law with each other. Well, she, she, her physical performance was really Shelly Duvall. Like she developed that herself. He worked with a guy named Lou Wills Jr. Who was a dancer. And he was a guy who, you know, uh, in singing in the rain, when Donald O'Connor does the back flip off the wall, that was what this guy's specialty was, that kind of move. And so everything Williams trained to do was just to be loose so that when he was on set, he could bounce off surfaces or do things. And very little of it choreographed ahead of time. But that months and months and months of him just learning to move like that leads to those places where he can find little stutter steps or little jumps that work and play to the character. I think that that kind of thing is what you don't really see in even the comic book stuff they're doing now, you don't see them thinking about the motion of characters that way. Drew, why do you think it is that uh, that there hasn't been another attempt at a live action Popeye movie? Well, I think in I think in some ways, anybody that would try would probably have to look at this and realize, shit, they did it. I mean, I don't know what you would do that's not this that would still be Popeye. So you're up against the fact that they did a pretty real job of translating them to the screen. And it didn't work. Audiences didn't want to see it. So for whatever reason, I think there is an automatic fear that maybe audiences just don't want live action Popeye. Maybe that's the thing. Yeah, you know, there are. Years, I, mean, I, I truly I do believe that there are. I'm sorry. Uh, there, there are a handful of, of characters that just for whatever reason fail to translate to the big screen. And maybe the universe of Popeye is just slightly too weird to, to find a popular audience. But. Oh, I've always joked that if you're, you know, that whole era after Batman came out in 89, when people were saying everything had to be dark and gritty. I've always joked that they should do a dark and gritty Popeye where it's Popeye Sailor of the Night and you do it R-rated and have it be Sean Penn as Popeye. That's ridiculous, of course. And the problem is, I don't know that they wouldn't make terrible choices like that. I think they would probably do it all weird and, yeah, it's, it's dangerous, man. There is so much that you could do so wrong. So here's Wesley Ivanhurt's entrance. And man, again, this is one of those cases where Altman's the method pays off because because he's recording live, because he's so careful to make sure that he can hear everything. He gets this wonderful stuff where the baby is making noises and Williams is playing off the noises and they're responding to him like he's talking. And it's magic, man. Yeah, but there's a bit where the baby makes some baby talk and he says, that's right, you're a baby. And it's just... It's exactly like any any father or any adult would do with a baby. It's a beautiful little scene, and it doesn't hurt that this is one of the cutest movie babies you'll ever say there, a baby. <laughs> he plays this with it. His, that, yeah, that's it, an actor. This is his first feature, and he is improving successfully with an infant. <laughs> yeah. Well, and this is this is the uh, this is the very first scene that, that Wesley shot, and he got really sick right after this. So there was a period then when he kind of goes went away and they weren't shooting with him as much. And then if you look at him in the later scenes, man, he's getting big quick. There he is growing over the course of this movie fairly rapidly. So 
almost every one of these sequences they had to shoot just as the scene so that within sequences he wasn't growing. Right. It was a great cartoon moment when he shakes the whole town. He's so angry. God. All right. So here they come. And this is a terrific moment that um, that we've talked about before, I think, on the podcast. I think when we, we first put this up, people had brought it up on Twitter. But when they come in and he sees them and they literally painted everything red, mm. it's great. It is it's such a it great, is, but all that work. Somebody mentioned that to me last night on Twitter that I, I mentioned Popeye and a woman, uh, she's just a friend of mine on Twitter out of nowhere. She says, Oh, the scene where everybody turns red. I absolutely love it. And I thought, God, how much work it must've taken for that one gag. <laughs> yeah. And then I love the, the gag that comes after that, that I think is so insane is him going down the hill, which is four different chunks of, stunt and four different people doing it and again just just amazing when we get there you'll you'll look at it and it's terrific the way they put it together Altman really solved problems in a very uh matter of fact way so that no matter what you could always shoot and there was always something in front of the camera and there's something in every like that shot when they're outside there's something yeah. happened in the left the right and the center of the frame like when he has these uh, just... <laughs> Irwin watching Paul Smith. This must have been fun to shoot. I'm sorry. Yep. And that was it. That was pretty much the end of that set. They had to, they, you get one shot at something like this. I wonder if, oh, that's a great stuff there. I, I wonder if they, I'm getting stuck on the stairs. I love that shot. That's great. Um, I, I <laughs> Thank wonder you very much. I enjoyed it. It was wonderful. <laughs> I wonder if Sweet Haven, I wonder if you can buy Bluto insurance. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Oh boy. And I remember as a kid, and I guess this is what you're supposed to be thinking, right? As a kid, all I'm thinking is, why do they let Bluto do this? Well, I didn't understand. They, yeah, have, yeah, they have to. I he didn't understand the politics the of it. You don't need to know, yeah. really. As a, a 10-year-old, 12-year-old, you don't need to know. All you know is like they're afraid of him and he's the bad guy. But I didn't get all but this it's, stuff. It's beautifully explained. Like yeah. The fact that the Commodore runs everything and the fact that Bluto is his man and the tax man is his man, there is a hierarchy here where... You have to do what they say. You are under their thumb no matter. Oh, here we go. And the sound and the shot and the. Oh, the red shot. Yeah. I love the wardrobe change. The fact that everything had to be completely redyed and put back on them as a totally different version of the costume. Terrific. A very cartoony, too. It's perfect. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, I like I like how he snaps his head to clear it. It's like, uh, uh-uh. all right. Yeah. I, and the shot, I love how the baby in the red shot. I love how the baby looks at Robin Williams. Just hold the baby. Oh, you should hold the baby. No, he's gonna kill me. I can't have the baby. <laughs> he knows what's coming. Robin's like, oh, oh, I love that. Look, the shot of the oil, I know the how whole, this looks. The oil family looking on. It's just great. Look at them all behind him. Uh-huh. Alvin knew how to frame an ensemble. I'm sorry. He did. He knew how to shoot. Uh, like, oh, we got five characters in the background. We need all five. All right. Give me a minute. And Okay. So that was that was Williams doing that stunt. Then you have Williams again for this. Then you have. That's another guy. That's Aldo Del Aqua, who actually did all seven of those flips. And then that's the wheel that they made that, look, that was cast out of Williams' face and body. 
That's insane. I mean, I love that just for a punch. Oh, and no, it's a it's a beautiful cartoonish moment. And I'm sorry, <laughs> but if that's the kind of stuff that you point to as why you don't like this movie, you got to watch some Popeye cartoons and some comic strips because that, that's what Robert Altman was trying to do. That ridiculously silly shot of the of Popeye spinning down. the. That's the the essence wow, of this look movie. At his body language, though. Mm. Look at how loose Williams was. He was a really beautiful physical performer when he was younger. Like he really, he was so in tune with and in preposterous shape on this movie. If you look at the behind the scenes photos of him when he's just like in shorts and stuff and working out, uh, Williams was ripped because he was so careful about being able to do every bit of physical. He didn't want stuntmen. He didn't want somebody to double him. There are about six shots in the whole film where he's not. Did, uh, did any of your research indicate, I uh, love that, that bam wipe, whatever, slam wipe, whatever you call that. <laughs> yeah. Um, any, anything, anything in your, everything in your research that indicates why Robin Williams was so hesitant to discuss this film later in his career. He did not like this movie. That's very strange because uh, clearly in the lead up to it, uh, that was not the case. And, you know, you can only you can only imagine that the reaction to it probably hurt. It was a major jump for him from TV to film. And he kind of had to take a step back after this and, and rethink it. And even Garp wasn't a safe bet. You know, that's the thing that I love about the choices he made is I don't think he made easy choices. And I don't think he made choices that were automatically commercial giants right off the bat. He looked like he made choices that as an actor were just more interesting or challenging. Yeah, and and you know I don't want to, I don't want this commentary to become you know too too beat too too sad or too down. How can but, it be too sad? Look at Sweepy, look at him. I just still I to this day I still can't get over the loss of Robin Williams. I truly cannot. I I know I don't want to get maudlin or sad, but I mean it it almost brings a tear to my eye just watching him here. He's just such a beautiful, expressive, open warm performer that you like you want to like i mean and the man made several the ideas he's throwing yeah, out he every made scene several so over the course of his career he he started some movies that are just plain old bad but even in those movies you could see him trying to please the audience trying to please the director and the writer and the, his co-stars he's like just a, a sweet generous performer you could see it in all his best movies where he would get to shine as an actor, but he also stepped back and let other actors shine. He was uh, just just a, a wonderful performer. I miss him so much. So the whole reason Sweet Haven was named that was so for that line where he says, I found him in Sweet Haven, so he's me Sweet Pea. And that's it. Like, they just wanted to have an explanation for the name Sweet Pea. And I love Sweet Haven. It feels like it should have been part of Seagar's creation all along. It feels like the perfect place for these weird-ass characters live. All right, this is the very end of production. This was a nightmare for them because by the time they tried to shoot this, weather was starting to change, the seasons were starting to shift, and the water was fucked. And so this whole last sequence had to be shot on that water, had to be shot on the boat. They really didn't have a second way to shoot it, and they had to wait for the weather to clear, and they had to keep everybody there, which meant they had months and months where they were freaking out about the money they were losing just so they could get to this sequence. Yeah, and you like you said, there was a lot in this movie that that was uh, shot and not and and then cut. This whole segment could almost be extracted from the movie whole, and you'd barely miss it as far as the narrative is, is concerned. You know? Yeah, 
Well, and it's this is this is, is one a, of the few it, scenes that it's a very episodic movie. I mean, I love the film, but you you know, once we, you establish the three of them together, it becomes like here's Popeye goes to a boxing match, Popeye goes to a race horse, a horse race, you know, and it is it does get a little episodic, but that uh, to me that doesn't hurt the film at all, you know. Well, and it, I think the progression that's important here is that because Olive pissed off Bluto. Now the family owes money. So that's what Caster's going to do here. Caster's going to get the money. He's going to clear his family's name. He's going to be the hero for once. And so the fight that they shot here, this this was, they shot almost the entire film in sequence. And they did that for the actors. They did that for the town. They did that so that as they tore things down, they didn't have to rebuild them. This is one of the few things they couldn't because of that weather stuff. And so because it was postponed and postponed, when they finally got here, they had they had one plan that they'd sort of put in place, and it all went out the window at the end. Every bit of choreographed, everybody choreographed, everything sort of went away when they got to the actual place to shoot it. And so Peter Bray, the guy who plays Oxblood Oxheart, he had to shoot all of these fights. Everybody else shoots fights opposite him. This poor son of a bitch was shooting for, like, seriously, three weeks of fights where it's just every night, all night, he's in the ring fighting. For years, I thought this gentleman was uh, Erland Vanderlith from uh, Me too. Alone in the Dark and Running Man. But nope, just another very large, bald man. <laughs> I, uh, I am confused with the dude who played um, uh, Oxberger in Stir Crazy. Uh, totally thought it was him. I think I just always connected them in my head. And uh, nope, not at all. Peter Bray, actually. What's the, he am- in- the, ambition, he in- the ambition of this sequence is we're going to have a giant boxing ring come in on a flotilla this epic boat like why like the ambition of this somebody might have been like hey robert why can't we just like maybe sweet haven has a boxing ring and it's already there no it has to come in on a boat (laughs) like it's imposing it's like you know it's a big now watch watch this fight um they're hitting each other donovan scott and peter bray when they did this sequence they they did it there's no stuntmen there's no doubles there's no nothing it's them for every bit of it and they hit each other, and that's how they staged it. They told each other, hit, do it. So all of this is real, and you're talking hours and hours and hours. Donovan Scott, by the end of this, was barely functional. Like It was about 15 regulation rounds of boxing that they shot, and for anybody who's ever been in a regulation round of boxing, one of them will kill you. 15 in a night is mind-boggling. Look at Donovan Scott. He just gets so tired by the end of this yeah. thing. It's amazing he's staying. Again, I, I love this character actor. He never really got his due. No, and he's great here. They're so funny with each other. They're so the physical stuff between them is good. My God, look at look at the work he does even before Williams gets in the ring. And I love that he gets so indignant that we get one of the great comic book moments of the movie, which is his entrance and his transition. Yeah. Oh, and he bounces into the ring. It's great. It's, a, it's such a great little moment. And it's it, like, it, it speaks to like, oh, there's a comic book moment right there. Him leaping into the, you know, a lot of it has been, you know, but this is now it's, uh, you know, it's getting into the hero, the hero moment. Oh, that's not good. <laughs> oh, wimpy, you. Wimpy is and, such a traitor. Yeah, there he is. And I love the legs. That was one of the choices that made me laugh really hard because I don't think we'd ever seen his legs in the, the costume change is great. He's already in his costume. What a great moment. Uh-huh. Popeye's got Popeye legs. And, uh, and it's like, it doesn't matter. You know, it's just that com- the cartoon logic of, oh, why is he in his boxing outfit now? <laughs> so this was this next fight. This is six nights, 80 takes, 
53 different camera setups to get this thing. So they averaged six and a half minute takes each time they did it. They fought the equivalent of 23 professional rounds to shoot this fight with each other. And again, it's all Williams and Peter Bray. There are no stuntmen used in the entire thing. It got so bad by the end of shooting this that they had to give everybody on board Dramamine because the thing was pitching at such an extreme level by the end of the shoot that everyone was just vomiting nonstop. Uh, another uh, filmmaker I, uh, who spoke up last night is Mr. Ryan Johnson, uh, the gentleman who is currently at hard at work directing The Last Jedi. Uh, you may have seen his other films, uh, Brick, Brothers Bloom, and Looper. And he sent me two words for about Popeye, and those words are, quote, deep affection. So there you go. Deep affection from Ryan Johnson. Look, I think that's how, if you think of this film and if you have a fondness for the film, it's a deep fondness because it is such an idiosyncratic movie. Look at the, look at the, and look at this. He's getting to be more Popeye every moment now. Every scene, he is more cartoony. The shoes are more cartoony. When he has no sleeves, of course, the, uh, they look a little faker. You notice this? Like the skinniness yeah. of his upper arms combined. But when he has the sleeves on, the arms are absolutely flawless. They're just perfect. Man, his physical work here, he is so bouncy. And this was a lot of the training that he wanted to do in the first place was just to be able to do that kind of bouncing stuff. Oh, the baby, the baby cheering is just a great shot. I mean, how hard it must have been to get that. <laughs> it's so funny. We haven't even gotten to any of the magical baby subplot yet. This movie really, it takes its time getting where it's going because there's a bunch of stuff. And that number, we'll talk about I am what I am when we get there. But that number is perhaps the most debated sequence of the movie by the people who made it. They Until the day they shot that thing, there were arguments. And this is the beauty of Popeye, you know? We, we, <laughs> we love when Popeye gets angry. Like, Popeye is a force of good. It takes a lot to piss him off, but when he gets mad, he will kick your ass. And, that's and he doesn't need the spinach. The spinach isn't the ass kicking. He's an ass uh, kicker. I love that. Love that shot. It's so cartoonic. He just pulls back and there's like a grimace. He doesn't fall. It's just a great punch. Yeah. So I like that this is the and perfect. Perfect. That kid again. Yeah. How bam, bam, bam. Him to do everything perfectly. And of course, you got now you got Bluto watching from the distance, which, you know, uh, kind of speaks to the, the next plot the plot devices that move on down the road, which is now he sees Popeye as a, a real threat. It was just. I also like that the wimpy subplot here is that wimpy's a piece of shit. Yeah, he is and a wimpy, sneaky wimpy guy. Keeps becoming a bigger piece of shit until he finally sells a baby for hamburgers. Yeah. I mean, he, he was complicit in castor oil being kicked oh, out of the ring. Oh, no, look at that baby. This is ridiculous. I love this song. This is this is a really sweet song, and they're adorable singing to each other. It's the first time in the movie that you really do see Olive warm up to Popeye, not just not just Tom. Yeah, see, you're right. That baby right there, that baby is six months older than the baby ten minutes ago. Oh, oh god, yeah. Oh yeah, that's a much older baby. And uh, and he had settled in by this point. He kicked the virus. He was happy again. And then once he was warmed up, that kid, you could put him in front of the camera, and that kid would just be cool. He was so happy with these people. 
Um, I liked that a lot of the recordings were live. If they could, they tried to actually use the take that they recorded on set, which is enormously unusual for musicals. Uh, if you know much about the, the production of film musicals, it's that you pre-record everything, you play it live on the set, and then you, you just lip sync to it, and that's the version that's in the film. Uh, not with this. With this, as much as possible, they tried to do the live takes on set because Nilsson would change the arrangements right up into the last minute and sometimes rewrite lyrics uh, even as they were going on camera. So they, they really, really tried to do these things in person with each other and then just have the little earpiece where they were hearing the music. Uh, and I love that she's willing to be silly while she's being sweet. You know, in, in most cases, it's like, all right, this movie's been really weird. Let's make the sweet moment just be sweet. No, no. This movie still has weirdness in the sweet moments. And that's when it is consistent with its weirdness. And that's part of the charm, I think. Her face there. <laughs> it's almost like a satire of a schmaltzy song, you know? Uh, Gail Simone, who is a comic book uh, writer and a huge movie geek, friend of mine on Twitter, uh, she said, I read a review of Popeye once that said it was the most non-musical musical ever. I think that's accurate, and I still love it. I think that's fair. Yeah. And I, I can see why she says that, because the music is not the way music is normally handled in these movies. You don't break in a song and then it's a giant production number. Yeah. In some cases, they're almost like like subtext that's going on during a scene. Yep. And uh, our mutual friend, Scott Derrickson, uh, director of Doctor Strange, and They There Stood Still remake and Sinister and a bunch of good stuff. He said, rare example of a good comic strip movie. Uniquely Robert Altman. Robin Williams is terrific in it, as usual. You know, you look at Shelley and you think that's got to be easy. It took two hours and 40 minutes to do that hair. And it took them two weeks to figure out how to just get it to stick out the right way and look perfect. And man, again, it looks so simple. You look at that and you go, well, of course, you just put it the thing and it comes out from behind her head. And nope, the engineering just to make them look like these cartoons is remarkable. Oh, well, that's the that's the secret that a lot of people don't know is that. Production design and costume, that's the stuff that, oh, yeah, that's that's the secret weapon. Like, you go, oh, yeah, production design. You build a bunch of houses and you build the interiors and da-da-da-da-da. Well, you're building a universe from scratch. <laughs> it's like everything you see in that frame right now, every bottle on the left, everything everything in that frame was somebody's artistic choice. And I, I think this film is knee-deep in really cool artistic choices. Is that a can of spinach there behind the baby? Look how, oh my God. It is. And guess who hates spinach? Guess who hates it? Just can't stand Drew, it. Drew, could you imagine if this movie had never been made and then somebody made a Popeye live action movie in 2017 and one of the major plot points was that he hates spinach until act three. Oh my God. <laughs> I think it's hilarious. I think that is such a great idea. That would be um, just, people would just flip out. Yep. Yep. And hotly argued on set. Like it was just as hot a debate between them. Okay. So we're moving into a, se a sequence here that this, this is enormously important, both thematically and in terms of the plot. I am what I am was the line that literally Robert Evans pitched to Jules Pfeiffer to get him to do the film. He's like, whatever else the movie is, I am what I am. And that's all what I am. That's the, the hook. And I think Pfeiffer loved that. I think Williams really loved that and love that as a notion, but Nailing down that song, I am what I am, where is it in the film, what is the moment, and what is it that he's saying at that moment, and why? 
that went through so many evolutions and even up until they shot it it wasn't this it was not supposed to be on the boat it wasn't supposed to be in a casino it wasn't it was supposed to be a giant number in the middle of the town in front of everybody that was almost like an answer to the sweet haven sequence where again he would dance through the whole town with everybody and it was going to be this gigantic thing by the time they got there they were roughly three months behind schedule and they realized story-wise none of that made sense anymore none of it nilson basically left malta thinking that they had fucked this song up and it wasn't even going to be in the movie whippy's not that bad he just wants to use the kid to win some horse races <laughs> he's not gonna sell uh, him no no he sells him later oh well all right yeah no no this is just the first of wimpy's transgressions wimpy gets really shitty by the end um but yeah this was supposed to be the gene kelly singing in the rain number instead of what it is finally in the film and altman basically went to war with everybody one of the things that you'll notice during the sequence that's about to come up is when they go to the casino You'll see all the townspeople from Sweet Haven there, and it's the only time in the movie that the townspeople aren't dressed like they're normally dressed in Sweet Haven. And it's almost like on the boat, everybody's the decadent, weird, sexed up, debauched version of themselves. So you've got all the housewives are suddenly hookers on the boat, and everybody's Look at gambling, that shot. Look at those boats. Oh, my God. Oh, this stuff is great. And yeah. they had to sink all these things in the harbor for real just to get the production design to look like that. But I love that this scene now becomes this weird fantasy almost in the middle of the film where Sweet Haven's turned inside out and Popeye stands in front of all of them and says, all of you have let me down because you're all out here gambling and you're doing this and you're using the baby right, and yep. no, all I, I, shitty right now. He really is like the city of Sweet Haven. They are very stuck in their provincial attitude of we are good, but they're all mean. They're all greedy. They're all cheating each other. They're all bickering and yelling. And and it's like you're supposed to be this beautiful, close-knit little hamlet, but you're all selfish, venal people. And I, Popeye, in my weird way, I'm going to be a force of morality in this town. He does. He lays it down here. He points at all of them and says, you have disappointed me. And let me tell you why. And I think this arrangement, and I think the, the Rob Williams performance of I Am What I Am here... Um, I think it's really special, and I think it's one of Robin's great, great film moments. I think he felt disappointed by it. Nilsson felt disappointed by it. I really wish they could see it for what it is, which is this beautiful human moment that is all Williams. And man, he steps up. I think there might have been a better, you know, I, I think it's a great song, and I think Williams does a, a fantastic job of it. But like you said, I, maybe they could have found a more emotionally impactful place to p place this. Well, it's it, almost angry, the version he does here. It's not like this joyous thing, which I think is kind of what Evans had in mind. And I think this version of it is more of an angry assertion that I, I'm going to be me. You guys are you. And I don't need to you don't need to approve of me and vice versa. It's really him saying that he is not in any way going to seek their approval anymore. Yeah, exactly. I've shown you what I am. And you, you know, you've been. You know, not all that kind. And I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to sit here. I love and try that to there's a bordello on the boat. It's not just horse racing. There's an actual whorehouse in the back there. I love that Ham Gravy is a riverboat gambler here. And you look at him and he's like suave and looks cool. Ham oil that stuff is great. Oh, no, he's not related. You're right. Ham Gravy. <laughs> Ham Gravy. What a great name for a character. Anyway, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
I'd be really curious. I would love, I wish I had thought of this a week ago. Uh, if I could, we could find some like Popeye expert, not the film, but I mean the, the history of the character. I bet you, if you found like a, a, a five, the five leading experts of, of, of the original Seeger and Fleischer, uh, those, I bet you people who really take this character seriously have some affection for the movie. I bet you they do. I'm sure they do. I'm sure they also have, I'm sure they all have their own particular gripes. Just like with any fan base, the, the people who are going to be the least satisfied are the people that are most invested in versions that already exist. And I think they're going to have very particular takes on it. I don't know if there were Popeye fans like the, there are with like Batman fans and things now. I don't, oh, there I definitely really don't are. Know what the fandom was like. There is fans for everything. There, you, you will find a person who knows literally everything about Penelope Pitstop. <laughs> I know that Bob Burns, who is famous as the uh, film collector uh, and film prop collector as the time machine and all of Rick Baker's early work. Uh, Bob has a huge section of his collection is just Popeye toys and Popeye memorabilia. And he is a rabid lover of the character just in general. I, li- I like that Popeye is I like when Popeye's mad at Wimpy. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> And here comes the song, and oh, he's going to bust it out. And this kid, God, this kid is just game for anything. He will really put up with almost anything in front of a camera. He is a beautiful movie baby. Yeah, he's a pleasant baby. That's, that's, you know. <laughs> and it must have been, it must have been really hard for all of Because think of what's I'll happening be- around him. It's not just normal people. He's got Popeye and olive oil in his face, and he's got noise, and he's got music and stuff my, going on. I got a baby noose who can't, I can't even look at her because my beard looks like Libertini's right now. So one, <laughs> just, she can't look at her uncle, let alone, look at that. I love the de- deadpan. Love that. Look at the camera. Great little, uh, and and it, again, this goes back to the morality thing, which is hey, there's all the housewives in town. I, yeah, I was taking this baby out of this den of iniquity, and you're all bringing him back. Am I the only? Am I the only decent person in this freaking town? <laughs> and I love the weird language of this song and the way that the lyrics kind of come together. And it is a weird, weird song. And I think even Nilsson and Williams, as they kind of like finalize the lyrics, realized it's it's built on these strange puns and these crazy jokes. And yet, in its own way, it's kind of his Hamlet moment where he's going to lay out exactly what he believes philosophy to be. Am I some kind of barnacle on the dinghy of life? And uh, these jokes are terrible and great at the same time. It, it, uh, it speaks to a, uh, you know, a cartoon mentality, really. And, you know, and Altman's so good at staging a, a story in the middle of a, the musical number here, which is he's trying to get to sweepy. They're all betting on him. All the body language that's going on here is being sold. This entire thing plays out during the song. And yet nobody's telling you the story. Nobody's stop. It's it's very elegantly staged. I really like the way Altman shoots this. Yeah. Very, uh, you know, low tech, very simple, uh, you know, but. That, that's that a shot. great moment. And this, I love his language, but he's just the way he p- clears the main area out. I'm really particular when I'm watching musicals about how they shoot dance scenes and how they shoot musical numbers. And a lot of it is I, I like to see the body of the performer. I like to see them. Oh, wait, no, watch his feet right here. Watch his he's feet. Great. Yeah. 
that's Popeye. I'm sorry, but that that right there, that's beautiful. You could say whatever you want <laughs> about this movie, but that moment right there is just beautiful, Popeye. And I like that Olive's reaction there is, oh, all right, he's a man. I got it. It's, the I think, the first moment of respect that she has for him in the film. Yeah, well, yeah, because he's not anything like these townspeople. He's, you know, they're all, you know, kind of grungy people. <laughs> and Popeye is not. That's right, Wimpy. Come here. Look what Time you did. shitty. I like that uh, Wimpy and uh, Robin, they solve their hair color the same way. They're, they both have exactly the same color of blonde because of the way it photographed. It makes them look bald, but they're not bald. They just have very short blonde hair, and it plays better. They experiment with both versions of it. I, uh, uh, the fantastic novelist, Joe Hill, caught wind of our conversation last night, and his contribution to Popeye is, quote, took too long for him to eat the spinach. <laughs> <laughs> he was not alone. Nope. Um, there were people on the movie who said the same thing all the way through production. That's interesting that, you know, when you have an argument that goes all the way through the process of making a movie and it continues into the audience and into the critics and into the people having uh, digested the movie. At that point, I don't know that it's that they made the wrong choice as they just realized no matter which direction you go with this decision, somebody's not going to be happy. So we've got to make the call. When you make something that's weird, you're going to risk some people looking at it and going, that's bad. And if you don't like this movie, I'm not saying you're wrong. If you don't like it, it doesn't work for you, then it doesn't work for you. But just because something is strange and offbeat, that doesn't, and you might giggle or chuckle or feel strange watching it, that doesn't make it bad. <laughs> That's no, somebody's I think art, you have to you know? go for the big swing. This is a big swing. And I, I respect the fact, it's like, I don't like the Flintstones. I really don't like the live action Flintstones movies. Bye, tax and man. And I, I love that. It's a great, and I love that everybody's immediately celebrating. Oh my God, he's gone. Um, Nobody checks to see if he's dead, right? Yeah, he's not dead. He's coming. He can swim to the dock, but right, I guess but it's, it's like, just... it's that, it's that cartoon <laughs> mentality of that he was humiliated. That's enough. Yeah. <laughs> it's over. Oh! Now we have something on him. <laughs> um, and here we go. Nicely done. And I like the way this is all separated. And I like the fact that now, finally, the movie starts to wrap everything up, bring everything together. And you realize Pfeiffer, as episodic and as loose as some of this feels, actually kind of knew where this whole thing was going. So that when the mystery finally drops together and we see where Sweet Pea goes and why he's taken and what they want to do, it all makes sense. It all finally connects Popeye's original reason for coming to Sweet Haven. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, for for a movie that has kind of a scattershot and and all over the place screenplay, you're right. It does. Uh, it does. You know, there is a thin uh, line, a narrative line that that does follow from the beginning of him out looking for his father and then being open to new people like Allah's family, and it led to him discovering a baby, which led to him being more mature and open, which led to him discovering spoiler his father. So it is a very specific hero's journey type of a template. But not and just his father. The fact that the town that he came to is under the thumb of some mysterious figure and that that figure who is putting pressure specifically on the oils to marry Bluto, who they then challenge, that figure ending up being his father. Like, I like the fact that all of it is, you know, we talk about movies where sometimes you have like the bad guy is in one movie and the main storyline is in this movie and 
eh, they kind of don't feel like they ever merge. This is a film where I th- feel like it all really ultimately does work as one thing, and you realize that he's the entire movie has been circling one idea. I'm going to rattle off some uh, some tweets that I got last night. Not uh, not from filmmakers per se, just from my friends on Twitter because I got I, I did uh, our friend Jeff Latulip, the guy who wrote uh, Going the Distance. He said, agreed, and random side note, I always wish that Altman had cast Robin Williams in Lyle Lovett's role in Shortcuts. <laughs> uh, Greg Saunders says, Walt is frozen, says, like Joe the Volcano, Joe versus the Volcano or Swiss Army Man, Popeye is so singularly its own thing, you kind of have to love it. Uh, Mr. Happy says, fantastic production design, inspired casting, a wonderful director, unsuited to material, bad octopus puppet. <laughs> now this number that this is the number that Paul Thomas Anderson is quoted in Punch Drunk Love. This is the song that I think most people know when they immediate that they think of first when they think of Popeye. And this was even after the the scene on the barge. This was another one where they kept postponing and kept postponing because of weather. They needed to be clear outside, not windy. And they had to grab this thing when they finally could at the very very end of production. They let Shelley do all of her own choreography, that all the body language, everything is her, and I think it's a beautiful dance. And they did 34 takes of her doing this for nine for nine different setups to finally get it. And the end result, I honestly think when, when Shelley Duvall goes, this is the thing I will think of first. It's uh, it's magic. She's magic in this scene. Yeah, this beautiful moment of her dancing, odd, uh, ironically, near a trash can. But it's <laughs> a perfect song. Hold, hold this shot on her shadow. It's just very simple and beautiful. Perfect song. They had to. This is one of the rare cases where, because it didn't quite work out sound wise, she came back two days later and just stood on that same dock and recorded the version that you're actually hearing so they could at least get the sound in the real place. Yeah, she had a great 1980, didn't she, Shelley Duvall? <laughs> she really did, man. And and the fact that The Shining was such punishment for her makes me love the fact that this came after because by all accounts, like she she published a newspaper on set every day where she would collect gossip and she would run things about the crew and the cast and the locals from Malta that they had gotten to know and she had Jules Pfeiffer doing cartoons for that thing and she she loved it and she was putting it out to 100 people every day and at the same time doing this two and a half hour makeup in the morning just to be able to play Olive. It was an act of, for her, just love. Like she, this character was something that was a gift. And I think the, the clear end result of that is you look at the, the way she plays this. Just look at her walk. She loves the shoes. She loves the, the costume. She is so good at making it all work for her. And and I think one of the reasons that we always that not only is she perfectly cast and not only is she's she going up the steps she's a goddess. Not even uh, even her performance is great, but I think the reason that we another reason we like her so much is that Shelley Duvall brings so much more to olive oil that was in the cartoon. <laughs> there's there's almost oh no, she made her real in she the comic her, strip. She there's real almost she she's almost just a stand-in for like woman that the two boys are fighting over. She's almost she's barely a character. I mean, at least, you know, I'm no expert, but well, she gets what she got right was the mannerisms. But then she took the mannerisms and found all this wonderful, weird humanity around it that she that she brought to life. That's what makes it so great. She is she at every moment 
lets you see this beating heart inside what is clearly the weirdest cartoon character. Love this shot of the baby sticking his head out the face out the porthole. That's just a great little shot. <laughs> feels so There's bad. so much in this movie that is about longing, about wanting to connect to somebody. And it's so, you know, they spend the entire movie next to each other and not, never quite making that that reach for one another until the end. But that's what the entire thing is. And that's that's what I think Nilsson's songs do so well is that longing. Uh, Edgar Wright, the director of many great films, including uh, Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, The World's End, and the and upcoming... Baby Driver this summer. The Ooh. upcoming Baby Driver, speaking of babies, uh, said, I saw Popeye on first release in 1980 and have never seen it fully since. Been meaning to. So, you know, just, just a little more contribution from... Uh, from uh, from from some great filmmakers and some great movie fans, we should do this for next commentary. Love asking filmmakers what they think of certain films, and I mean, I like asking anybody, but any like I'm really curious about like you know the guy who made Shaun of the Dead. I want to know what he thinks when he looks at Popeye. You know that to me is interesting. I know what I think. Um, Let me describe something for a moment. You know, we look at the people who are on screen, and it's it's one thing, but you kind of forget that. You, you build a community when you're making a movie, and especially in a film like this where they went to Malta and they were living in Sweet Haven and they were working in Sweet Haven and they were kind of in Altman's world the entire time. Um, check this out. So the production leased 180 furnished apartments for the cast and crew. They were as close to the set as the neighboring village of Malaya and as far as halfway across the island. The Maltese buildings were made of stone and they had a cool cavern of spaciousness to them. So these, these people carried space heaters around with them from room to room because everything was so frozen cold. The water itself was super, super salty, so everybody had to use bottled water for everything. There were 23 children on set, ranging from newborn babies to 14-year-olds among the American cast and crew, and they either went to Maltese school for the winter quarter or went to a daycare center that was created by the production. Um, it was crazy. Everybody's schedule revolved so much around the life of the film that on Sundays, they would have a double feature where Altman would fly prints in. So they would watch all that jazz, and then they would watch Bambi or Fantasia or Mary Poppins, because Disney would send them prints to the set since it was a Disney movie. And since they had circus performers working on the film as cast they would get together and they would do like a circus performance that would also turn into a workshop where people would pick up things that they would then drop into the film over the course of the week just an unbelievable atmosphere to work in and live in for almost a year while they were making this thing yeah yeah and and you know and, and i guess that kind of like with such an ambitious project that took a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of effort and a lot of originality doesn't immediately become a hit you know i i i think that's part of the reason that the film has a reputation for being a flop and because when you put this much time and expectation into a film you expect it to be a big huge hit and you know while popeye was certainly not a huge hit i will still maintain until i draw my final breath that this film is not a bomb <laughs> uh it's not it's not like it's you know and it's so funny what people think of as bombs what is the biggest bomb of the 80s in terms of cost to return. Heaven's Gate. Do you know? No, it's not Heaven's Gate. Uh, it's, Im Ishtar. It's, it's Steven Spielberg's Empire of the Sun. Oh. And it's a giant, giant disaster that made like a million dollars at the U.S. box office and cost something like 63. It was an insane cost to return. So, Drew, what you're saying is that if people think... But that's think not thought of, of as a giant right. bomb. So I think... Just, is, is this your theory? And I hope it is. Is your theory that... If a film is generally considered not good, the easy way to deride it is just to say it's a bomb. It, it, yeah, okay. 
because they did that with 1941 as well. 1941 was supposed to make a lot more money, but it still cut a pretty decent profit. Now, Ray Walston, yes. talk about an inspired choice. Not only is there a beautiful symmetry in the fact that Ray Walston got famous playing a Martian on TV for a sitcom for many seasons, and so did Robin Williams, but there is a beautiful physical resemblance that I never would have picked up, I never would have seen before, but when you put them side by side with just the little bit of makeup that they're each wearing to play Poop Deck Pappy and Popeye, it's perfect. They are flawless father and son in this. Yeah, uh, this, of course, is the immortal Ray Walston, passed away in 2001. Uh, probably best known for uh, this sitcom, uh, My Favorite Martian. Uh, but, of course, is one of those character actors who worked his entire life, was always great. Uh, he's in, in the 80s. You would recognize him from Johnny Dangerously. He pops up in that. He's also ugh, in private school. He's also Mr. Hand in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, of course. I don't know why I didn't start there. He also reprised that role in the short-lived Fast Times TV series. Uh, he is the one of the judges in From the Hip, a Bob Clark comedy. Uh, but, you know, just rattling off a handful of 80s credits for Ray Walston doesn't cover it. The man was in hundreds of things and uh, just, just a rascally, lovable character actor. He was the last guy to show up for the film because his stuff was shot so late. And literally, they they everything else was in the can by the time they brought him in. So he came in uh, late February, which was something like seven and a half months into production. And even then, when he showed up, everything was running so far behind that he spent nine weeks waiting and rehearsing and waiting and waiting. So um, he said in the end it helped because he got to watch everything. He got to see all the dailies. He got to kind of get the vibe of the movie. So when he hit the ground running, he kind of felt like he knew oh, what movie he was jumping yeah, he's, into. And plus, he's Ray freaking Walston. He, you know, he's just perfect. So, Drew, plot-wise, what's happening here? Okay, so plot wise at this point, Wimpy, Wimpy, why did Wimpy bring the baby to Bluto? To... Uh, because the Commodore asked for him. The Commodore believed that uh, uh, he was going to use the baby's magic uh, powers to get rich. And so he asked Bluto to bring the baby to him. Bluto is tired of taking orders from the Commodore. So Bluto's now staging an uprising. And man, look at Wesley. I've not heard there. He's like four at this point. He's so much older than he is. In right? that early. He's look not even him. a baby anymore. Oh, he is big at this point. By the time they finished this film, he was literally walking. I, so. have, uh, I, have a, I have another piece of feedback from the fantastic Ava DuVernay. Oh, uh, nice. And, yeah, she, uh, the director of Selma and the upcoming A Wrinkle in Time, which I cannot wait to see because I read the book as a kid. Uh, and she said, I saw Popeye as a youngin. I knew nothing about film. Captured my imagination, something fierce, especially my girl Olive. Quote, he needs me. That was my song. Oh, yeah. I'm excited. I'm excited because her Wrinkle in Time is the giant Disney version. And this is one of those books, man. People have taken a shot at this. There's a TV movie. There's all sorts of uh, you know audio versions. I, I it's a really hard one to get right, and I think she has a huge job ahead of her. I'm really excited to see what she does, man. Very it's awesome. cool lady. She knows her stuff. Um, if you don't follow Ava, do on Twitter. You should A V A. Very easy to remember. This might be my so favorite. The, this might be my favorite moment of Robin Williams in the movie when he's arguing with the two of them. And look at the acting he's doing here. He's really like angry and fighting for what he you know this. He's arguing and look at the faces he's making. That's great. That's real acting. He never like he didn't think he was a good actor early in his career, but he was. He truly he was maybe a little rough around the edges, but Robin Williams was a natural. When you are that willing to do anything for a laugh, it's not that 
big of a leap to be an honest, open, uh, uh, vulnerable actor. I, I, I even before he won his Oscars, I always thought Robin Williams was an underrated actor, and, well, and ev- this even is, in this, yeah, yeah, and this is huge. This is everything because Popeye's whole his whole life is built to the idea of finding his father and to not only find his father, but to learn that his father is a piece of shit who stole his kid, who has been holding this town under some to connect all these dots at the same time. Popeye is really being pulled apart here. And when they go into the room, this, this sequence, Ray Walston talked about how this was, this was a big scene and they approached it the same way you would approach any meaty dramatic scene. And look movie at this where, shot. Yeah. I love that master shot of him walking across the town and the whole and, town is behind him. Now they love him now. Yep. Yeah. Finally, Sweet Haven has accepted him. He is part of Sweet Haven and they are behind him a hundred percent. You know, Drew, we talk a lot about on this show. We talk a lot about how nostalgia value versus legitimate value or I don't buy you know, it on this one. Right. I but here's, don't. here's my question. Is it maybe that nostalgia value comes from the fact that we were 10, 12 years old? This movie sends a great message to children who feel like alienated or left out or lonely or, uh, or you know, like different. Well, and I think I was at the age where I was starting to appreciate the idea that you built a world when you made a movie. And that something like Star Wars, the reason that Star Wars was so all-consuming for me was because it the corners of that world suggested you could keep going and exploring and Altman did that here. Altman was making his version of that here, but it was a totally different kind of world. And I don't think everybody was on the same wavelength, but I loved it. I went into a theater and I got lost in this. And yes, I read this making of book. So I kind of walked in knowing they did all this work. And then I looked at the movie and it's in the movie. It's not a case where you read about all the character stuff that they did. And then it's not there. When you watch the background of these scenes and you see how these the townspeople grow and change and learn to accept Popeye and how they all have their stories that are playing out and their relationships that exist, it's in the movie. And so you realize it all pays off and you see it. I love the two of them here. I think they, they play out an entire relationship as father and son over the course of this one scene. They become children at one point arguing with each other. There's anger, there's resentment, there's acceptance. It all plays out here. It's I mean, yeah. I'll read a little bit more from Roger Ebert. Uh, and yet Popeye nevertheless remains true to its origin on the comics page and in those classic cartoons by Max Fleischer. A review of this film has to start with the work of Wolf Kroger, the production designer, who created an astonishingly detailed and rich set on the movie's Malta locations. Most of the film takes place in a ramshackle fishing hamlet, Sweet Haven, where the streets run at crazy angles up the hillsides and the rooming houses and saloons lean together dangerously. Sweet Haven has been populated by actors who look or are made to look so much like their funny page originals that it's hardly even jarring that they're not cartoons. Audiences immediately notice the immense forearms on Robin Williams, who plays Popeye. They're big and brawny and completely convincing, but so is Williams' perpetual squint and lopsided smile. Shelley Duvall, the star of so many other Altman films, is perfect as Olive Oil, the role she was born to play. She brings to Olive a certain dignity, you might say. She's not lightly scorned. And although she may tear apart a room in an unsuccessful attempt to open the curtains, she is fearless in the face of her terrifying fiancé, Bluto. The list continues. Paul Smith looks ferociously Bluto-like, and Paul Dooley, a perfect wimpy, forever curiously sniffing a hamburger with a concessioner's fanatic passion. Sorry, connoisseur's fanatic passion. Even the little baby, Sweepy, played by Altman's grandson, looks like typecasting. This this scene right here uh, between the two of them, uh, they shot this, they 
cut the dailies very quickly, and then they would hit, they would do screenings for the cast. They screened it. Everybody loved it. They applauded. Actually, what, Ray Walston was the one that said, "Actually, can we do one more thing?" And he convinced Altman to go back into the basement, hang him back up there. And at the very beginning, when Popeye comes down the thing and he stops, and there's a moment where he looks at the old man, and there's the shot of the two of them, and they're just looking at each other. That was the thing that Walston asked them to go back and shoot. And it really does make the difference because there's a moment of them regarding one another and realizing how identical they are before they launch into the scene. It's it's a great case of how open Altman was to his cast and how Walston, who had such a long performance history by this point, he knew it's the little details, it's the little fine things that ultimately make a scene Uh. work. This is so Williams, this moment here where, he, where they revert back to him being a baby and his dad scolding him. That is one of the few truly Robin Williamish moments, like him, him wailing like that. And I'm sorry, but for all the people who, with all due respect to Joe Hill and the people who feel this way, the, the point is, if you're telling the story of how Popeye became Popeye, you should have the moment where he first discovered that spinach is his spinach. <laughs> Uh, you, know, you sissy-pated sniffle-snaffle. I yeah, think that you, is one I of the greatest maybe, insults. Okay. Yeah, may, maybe, maybe the film takes too long to give him the Popeye, to give him the spinach, but I love the idea that he doesn't like spinach to begin it with. It has to be Pappy, though. It has to be Pappy who teaches him, and it has what to be Pappy who's... What a good lesson that is for kids. I, I hate carrots. Well, guess yeah. what? Just because you hate carrots doesn't mean you shouldn't eat them. You know, like, it's a great little lesson. <laughs> And I love that Pappy is like, you little runt, you resentful, and he knows what's going to happen. Oh, that's a great gag. I never noticed that before. He cuts the rope and he holds the wrong side. He holds this. (laughs) Never. This might be the 10th or 12th time I've seen this movie, and I never noticed that silly little sight gag of he holds the wrong end of the rope and watches as he falls down. Now, does the end of this movie feel to you like, okay, we get to this point right now. Everything has finally come together. He's finally, here's Poop Deck Pappy. They're going to go after Olive. They're going to work together. And then this whole next movement seems to happen in about 12 minutes, and then it's over. Like, they rush to the end. Well, that's because literally they rushed to the end. They ran out of money and time. Does the book have, like, tell you what these sequences were plot-wise that they shot? Well, this is what they shot, and the reason they shot this is because they ran out of time. So they they had a much longer they uh, they had an octopus named Slimy Sam who was built who was supposed to be guarding Pappy's treasure. There was going to be a whole sequence where Popeye got he contracted a disease called Boncus of the Conchus, and he forgot who he was while he was on the island. And there was a whole sequence involving that and Bluto, who was then trying to go get the treasure, and he had to get past Slimy Sam to get the treasure. And so all of that was supposed to play out. They built the uh, thing. They took it out to the cove. They built the cove. There was supposed to be a giant mass splitting duel between Popeye and Bluto on the open sea. Everybody was supposed to be uh, out on boats around them. So there was going to be a giant musical number at the end with all the people of Sweet Haven in boats surrounding the island in the boat where Popeye and uh, the oils were reunited with Poop Deck Pappy. It was crazy how big it was supposed to be. They got there and there was no way. There was just no way. There was no time. There was no money. They had run out of uh, really even energy. I think Altman by this point almost felt defeated. And you're still supposed to go shoot your big finale to the movie. So they tried to streamline everything and just make it simple. And and I think when you see Williams in this final sequence, especially after he eats the spinach and he's he's dancing and he goes through that final number, 
um, you're looking at a guy who's exhausted, who almost doesn't know where he is or what he's doing anymore. And I think they are all just about to collapse. I love the framing of this, the mother on the left and caster on the right. I love the framing of the boat like that. And, you know, I, I think maybe part of the uh, reason that the film was considered a disappointment, because as much as I unabashedly love it, the ending is a bit anticlimactic. You kind of want a little bit more chasing, escaping, adventuring, fighting. It, it is kind of an abrupt ending. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I yeah, can there's, see. There's a whole other movie where Popeye is Popeye the Sailor Man and goes and has an adventure. And I would love to see. I wish that this had made $150 million. And part two, it had the Jeep and the Sea Hag and the Goon. And they had gone searching for treasure and they'd had an event. I wish that existed. And Nilsson had written more songs and it was great. I just watch this stuff and I wonder, like the mother, the, the actress playing the mother in the background, what did Altman tell her that, like, what is it you're doing right now? I mean, it's great what she's doing, but I would like to know what Altman told her that she's doing right now. <laughs> well, it, it all becomes about attitude. It's you have to be selling this attitude. You have to be selling this attitude. And this is, uh, they, they pointed out that this is the longest musical number in the movie. It is sung by the oldest musical, uh, the oldest member of the cast about the youngest members of the audience. It's a very strange musical number, and it goes on for a long time. And look how he orchestrates that all the characters have to come about and chase each other by. There goes, you know, Libertini and and like, what is it they're doing? It's nothing. It's just business to keep the to keep the uh, the frame active. He wants to keep the audience jumping and, and, and excited and just having these these minor characters running through the background and doing all kinds of silly things that gives us some energy it's like it, it is like a cartoon well by the time they got to the tank they they cut all the dialogue that was in the script they just told them to fight and they shot for seven straight days they shot uh on there was a sunday during that shoot where they shot triple time they shot completely through the entire day even through lunch through dinner through everything because they just had to keep shooting they had uh williams and bluto fighting for as long as six hours every day and they, they had no idea how to cut any of it together. They had no idea how it was all going to work. It was really just, let's just shoot. Something's got to work. Something has to make sense. Could it be that people like you and I and a lot of these filmmakers and fans that we've talked to, could it be that we legitimately half like the movie and the rest of it is just we love the ambition? Like, we just love the effort? No. I, I mean, I yes, the ambition matters to me, but I I really legitimately think... 99% of this movie is great. I think they whiff the ending, but I also I, understand I think why that, they yeah, whiff the ending. I think if we could get across anything to not necessarily just young moviegoers, but moviegoers and movie fans of any generation, of any age, a film does not have to be perfect, quote unquote, for you what to love it. What film is perfect? What film is perfect? I'm, I'm, that, that's a, it's one of those things. I don't even know how that entered the conversation. I don't know what idiot started the conversation. Well, it's not perfect. I, drop it from your fucking vocabulary. Films aren't perfect. Imperfection is what makes film interesting. Imperfection is part of what makes it human. You know what makes perfect things? Robots and, and assembly lines. That's what makes perfect things. <laughs> I, I love a lot of imperfect movies, and that's fine. There's I don't get the idea that you're looking for. A I don't know. To me, movie. movies are like people, man. They, 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 they evolve. They grow. And, you know, you love if you love a movie, you love it despite its faults. And... Popeye has its faults, but I will, you know, so is my sister. I still love her. The fact that they got to the end of this movie and they ran out of gas is no surprise when you hear that they spent a month shooting Sweet Haven. You know, Altman's 
movies are almost built to collapse at the end. Like he builds it so that his cast is going to be exhausted. And ironically, there. as uh, as we've already mentioned, the most of the set still stands in the Mediterranean. And if you're anywhere, if you're in the Malta area, you can go on a tour of Sweet Haven. Check my Twitter. You'll see some. We'll put them up on the site. Drew, uh, we'll put yeah, some up. very cool photos that those people took. And I've seen plenty of photos over the years from people that have gone. And I think that's really groovy that people love it enough to go find it. It's like the prisoner where you can just go to that island and go walk around that place. And it's pretty much you're standing in the film. That's a pretty ballsy, ballsy stunt there. of Williams right up there in front of the boat like that. And again, most of this is just Williams because they didn't have time to do anything else. Um, Shelley Duvall spent a lot of time underwater with the, uh, the octopus. Always like, love that shot. I don't know why. Just a pirate with a pirate, pi- pirate parrot. Love it. That's very funny. That's a Wolf Kroger touch, the production designer. A lot of the really funny little like gags and uh, like the cans of things and what stuff is called. A lot of that is just Wolf Kroger trying to make Altman laugh. And I think he's so funny. She, this is a great visual. She was stuck in the pipe and now he's dragging it behind his little boat. Um, um, once she went underwater, she said it got really scary because she's not a swimmer. And I, I always get nervous when I hear actors talk about when they're put in in potentially dangerous situations of any kind. And for her, especially after The Shining, I would think you really don't want to then go to Malta and and drown. I mean, you survived the snow in Kubrick. You really want to survive the comic book movie. And I think it's nuts that they cut 90% of the, the octopus stuff anyway. So the stuff that she was really nervous about and scared during. Between this and the Goonies, man, stay away from octopuses because they're going to get cut out of your movie. And they won't look good. And they'll never work. Yeah. Ask anybody about Popeye and they go, oh, my God, what about that octopus? You ask anybody about the Goonies, they say, oh, my God, what about that octopus? Well, yeah. And just building him, just slimy Sam never worked because it was insane that they had him underwater. Um, I think one of the craziest ideas of this entire thing is, you know, they get to the very, very, very end of this and they finally play the song Popeye the Sailor Man. That wasn't going to happen. That was on set. Somebody went. Maybe we should use Popeye the Sailor Man here. And they realized eh, we should have it in the film somewhere, right? That's nuts that they almost made the mistake of not putting the song, the one song that was already known around the world and iconic in the musical movie. <laughs> uh, before we wrap up, I want to just I'm going to read the ending of uh, of Mr. Ebert's review. There's some more there. Obviously, go to RogerEbert.com, search for Popeye and you can read the whole review. Of course. Uh, the movie's songs by Harry Nilsson fit into all of this quite effortless, effortlessly. Instead of having everything come to a halt for the musical set pieces, Altman s- stitches them into the fabric. Robin Williams sings Popeye's anthem, I Am What I Am, with a growling old sea dog stubbornness. Bluto's I Mean has an undeniable conviction, and so does Olive Oil's song to Bluto, He's Large. Shelley, Shelley Duvall's performance as Olive Oil also benefits from the amazingly ungainly walking style she brings to the movie. Popeye. How does he see through his corncob pipe? It's cartoon, man. <laughs> Popeye, <laughs> then, and this is, again, this is a film that is infamous for being, quote-unquote, bad and for being a bomb. Now, of course, this is just one critic's opinion, but it is a critic that a lot of people really respect. And this is the great moment when he pops up and beats Bluto's ass. I love this. Uh, Popeye, then, is lots of fun. It suggests that it is possible to take the broad strokes of a comic strip and turn them into sophisticated entertainment. What's needed is the right attitude toward the material. If Altman and his people had been the slightest bit condescending toward Popeye, the movie might have crash-landed. But it's clear that this movie has an, apex- has an affection for Popeye and so much regard for the Sailor Man that it even bothers to reveal the truth about his opinions on spinach. Three... 
Three and a half out of four stars, and he was in the minority back then, let's say. I think this is also, this is an essential moment in the history of where we've gotten now with, you know, the Marvel movies and the comic book movies and translating the fantastic to the big screen. Um, <clears throat> like Popeye, don't like Popeye, whatever. This was a major movie. And coming after Superman, which was the first, like, real late 70s attempt to make the jump from the comic book to the big screen. I think Superman did it fairly well. Superman got away with a lot because we like Chris Reeves so much. And they made the the basic choices right. Um, I think that that's, that's a good example of how they, they started down this road. I think Altman's Popeye was important because the things that didn't work about it for people, that was really important for filmmakers and for studios to consider and to look at. And believe me, the conversations were happening. Annie was obviously already on the table. There were conversations about Batman already. Tom Mankiewicz, who wrote Superman, was writing a Batman already by this point, And they were trying to figure out how they were going to do that one. So everybody was at this point kind of starting the conversation about how do we do it? How does it happen? It, does it, do we go super real? Do we go super fantastic? Do we use lots of special effects? Do we use no special effects? What do you do to make these worlds work? And I think Altman, I, his balls at going as full on as he did for this, um, I think informed choices that we see later from guys like Sam Raimi and people who steer 100% of the material, even if it's scary. Right. Well, I mean, it's part of the reason that I asked these filmmakers for their opinion, because, I mean, yeah. you know, uh, Ryan Johnson is making Star Wars and Ava DuVernay is making Wrinkle in Time and Scott Derrickson made Doctor Strange. These are all either comic or literary adaptations. And I wanted their, you know, this was a film that informed a lot of them, uh, you know, that that it might not have been a, an active uh, uh, influence. But these filmmakers thought think well of this movie and, you know, uh you, you, you wonder if they maybe had brought some of that, uh, you know, some of that affection to their own work. Um, I, I got to think that if, as a filmmaker, you look at this and what you're looking at is all that stuff that I've been talking about. The Wolf Kroger stuff and the costuming and the, the hair, the actual human hair on Robin Williams' arms that makes them look like real arms. Where it's a casual thing and you accept it, but weeks and weeks and months and months of work before they got to something that then you don't have to think about when you're looking at it. And I, I really do think that Altman doesn't get credit for where he belongs on that continuum of these movies becoming the cornerstone that they are now of our baby. film industry. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You're, I think that, you know, you look at movies like Popeye and Flash Gordon and, you know, people can say what they mm -hmm. want about whether they were successful or, or campy or bombs or hits. But I guarantee you a large generation of filmmakers, the people who are making the films that you love today, mm -hmm. watched movies like Superman, a 78, Flash Gordon, Popeye, and that got into their brain. That informed absolutely Flash yeah. Gordon's in their vocabulary as well. I guarantee there's not a filmmaker working right now making this kind of film who isn't at least informed by the way the score was approached on that film, where they think about how are they going to do the score. When we look at what James Gunn does on Guardians of the Galaxy and Guardians of the Galaxy Two and his use of pop music, it's really clever. It's really smart. It's very thematically uh, relevant and. Part of the reason that he can do that and get away with something like that is because at some point Mike Hodges went, yeah, Queen, that's a good idea. Mm, mm, mm. It's interesting that both films have such uh, influential and memorable uh, musical scores. You know, it's like when people think and Flash I love Gordon, Nilsson for this. Uh, yeah, Nilsson's such a weird choice for a musical yeah. anyway. Nilsson's stuff is 
if you like Nilsson as a songwriter and as a performer, it's very personal. It's really idiosyncratic. It's very weird. I am surprised how much of his sense of humor translates to this. The fact that there's a Disney movie where a woman is singing about the man she's going to marry, and it's a song called He's Large, um, that's <laughs> filthy. And uh, I don't never really took it that way, honestly. Oh, it's but the double entendre is yeah. part of what makes Nielsen fun. I, uh, he is one hundred percent. And if you watch the the backup singers, they are one hundred percent singing the other version of that song <laughs> and laughing about it. And they know what the joke is, and that's great. And as a kid, you don't read that at all. As a kid, uh, you're looking at Bluto <laughs> and reading he's large, but it's clever songwriting that I think works, and it. It you ages know, with you. As you go back to these songs, you realize how touching they are or how beautiful they are or how emotional they are. And it, they become better with time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what, what could you again, going back to the, if this film was made, Here today, it is like, imagine this movie was made today and Popeye was a DC character. Okay. He makes and, him eat spinach to make him eat shit. It is Bluto fucking with him. Yeah. I yeah. love he, that. Not only just Popeye, not like v- spinach, but the <laughs> villain Force feeds it to him. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, I did it. I know, just fucked myself over. Oops. And now, and now, now the great, the great. I like uh, you can complain that it took too long to introduce the spinach, but without doing that, you don't get this awesome payoff that you get here. Yeah. Pow, this, the, the audience is- right now is elated because they've seen the cartoons and they know what's coming now, and they yeah. are so like you don't have this payoff if you don't have the spinach late in Act Three. You know. Okay, and now get the octopus puppet out of here and let Robin dance on the underwater platforms, which I always loved. I love him dancing on water at the end of the film. Um, it's one of the happiest moments. We, uh, we, we, we glance past it real quick, but there's a bit right before the octopus pulls her down and she's stuck in that pipe. And she does this little thing where she bites the tentacle to, <laughs> and then she immediately goes, ew, ew. I ew. love that again. He yeah. turns yellow. Mm-hmm. Now he's a coward. He's running away. It's just as good as the gag with them in red at the door. Mm-hmm. Oh, Popeye. That's it. And what's his treasure? It's all the stuff he had from when Popeye was a baby. Oh, come on. That's awesome. I just and I that's, can't. That's a payoff that actually earns then the the long, long, long fuse they have on Poop Deck Pappy. It's a nice shot right there. You could tell he wants to have all the, you know, you don't really see somebody on the right there. It's not framed perfectly, but, you know, you could just, like, and every, now you they want, sing it. He wants everything to be a master shot in which the entire ensemble gets a, gets a spotlight, you know? And now this dance stuff yeah. that Williams is doing, this is what he was supposed to do during I Am What I Am originally. This is the acrobatic Gene Kelly stuff he was going to do in that original version of the number and he said why don't i do it on water and so they had to rig a platform quickly and i think it's beautiful i think it's a great way for him to end the film yep yep yeah this is a great moment it, it, it he cuts loose you, she's it, funny finally she's the real olive oil who loves her man she's finally 100 team popeye Giesel and wimpy have made friends again it's great. I This cast is so on their game by this point. Everybody, look at fucking Sweepy. He's so adorable. Ray Walston having a good time. Look at that baby smile. That's adorable. Yep. Yeah. Well, yeah, he has it. the best smile I think I've ever seen. It's one of those perfect film baby smiles. Even if they had only based the, the model on him, they still would have wanted that smile. I love that and last shot. There we shot, go, man. guys. We are wrapping Popeye. It wow. Is, 
I, I am such a fan of this, and I am so glad that we did this early because this is this is an example of a film that I feel like it never really got uh, the the behind the scenes thing or the the informative stuff that it deserves. So thankfully, we can kind of step in and, and help to make some of that happen and to share how much not only we love it, but I love that Scott reached out to the filmmakers and he got some of them to participate. We want to hear from you guys after you watch Popeye, especially if you watch it with this commentary. Did you feel like you got stuff out of this? Um, and uh, again, we thank you guys for being Patreon supporters in the first place. It's because of you that we're going to be able to continue to grow the podcast. Um, every month, more of you join. And I think that so far, the uh, the bonus content that we put together has been very exciting uh, for us. And your response to it has been really, really gratifying. So, so thank you for that. Yeah, thank you very much for taking, you know, there are lots of awesome movie podcasts out there. And I know because I listen to a dozen of them. Uh, so I know that there's only so many hours in a day to devote to your fun little hobbies of uh, movies and podcasts and whatnot. So the fact that you uh, give us, you know, an hour of your day or an hour of your week means a lot to us. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Please leave us some iTunes reviews. Uh, pimp us up on the Twitter and the Facebook. Do whatever. Just, you know, tell people we're awesome. That's all we want. And uh, we will be back with more interviews and more commentaries in the weeks and months ahead. So thank you. Thanks so much, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.